Bring the hot take, Brian. I am so bored of interview podcasts. <laughs> so that is why. That is my like spicy, my spicy take. So we t- I tried doing one and hosting one. I've tried listening to more. I'm just done. I'm, I'm exhausted yeah. of them. So I, I've been thinking about like, why are we doing this? I've been writing down some notes around it and how to talk about this show that we're doing. And the best way that I can describe it is Like, yeah, interviews are awesome. You hear about the like really good polished story of the frameworks and ideas and big picture stuff that people are thinking about. But when I think about what I do when I hang out with other product and growth people at dinner or over a cup of coffee or just sitting around, we're just talking about products. Like we're talking about what have you seen recently that you're excited about? What companies are out there that you're interested in? What are you working on? And those conversations are private and there's really no reason for them to be. And those conversations are, can be really, really interesting. And that's what we naturally end up doing (laughs) when we get together. So why not make that be the core of uh, what we bring out into the world to make more public out and, and hopefully help an audience get engaged with that and talk about products too more often because nothing makes you better at doing this stuff than, being a student of everything else everyone else is building. And I think that's fun and I like to do it every day and we might as well do it here. I like that. This week we've got Farid and I. However, in future weeks, we will also bring in a guest. And the whole concept is each one of us uh, essentially chooses a recent product uh, or feature release, or maybe there was some really good article in the space And we'll bring it, we'll summarize it, we'll give our take, our opinion, the insights that we kind of see uh, around this. And then as a group, uh, we'll start to discuss and debate it a little bit. And so I think through that, uh, you know, through, through that motion, what we're hoping to bring to this is just a little bit more exposure to how other people in the industry think about other topics. And so like what we like to say is that uh, on unsolicited feedback, this is feedback that nobody asked for about their products, but we're going to give it anyways. And that's not supposed to be a negative thing. We're going to have fun with it. We'll be playful with it. We'll be both positive as well as critical around things. And we'll see what emerges. The 101 and 80 billboards are such a like sign of what era you're in, Mm. in San Francisco and in tech. And, you know, it's a bunch of AI stuff, right? But one of the billboards was basically an ad for a like VC fund for oh, distressed yeah. It's like literally the billboard says like down rounds, turnarounds, like, you know, bad shit happening to your company. And it was a little like a real estate ad. It had like a picture of a person and their email address underneath it. Like oh. almost like lead, like looking to get lead gen <laughs> like to those invest in like in those roadside sa- um, uh, signs that are like we'll buy house for cash <laughs> yes it's it was it felt a lot like that little bit fancier design oh, etc so and it was like one of the prime billboards right after you get off the bay bridge so i was i had never seen anything like that before i've never seen an investor advertising so i don't know i wish i'd had enough wits to take a picture of it because it was so fascinating that's a good tweet. but yeah that's a good tweet. i'm sure it's, it's still there. To like somewhere that yeah. you, hey you could still do yeah. it. you go drive by for that you know <laughs> yeah i gotta just go to the city again so well we'll see what uh, happens all right
So yeah, I don't know. I watched a bunch of YC Demo Anything Day interesting? stuff. Uh, it's a lot of AI companies. AI for X. Let's see. The stuff I wrote down was five trend for embeddings, trust and safety AI, drug combinations for AI, AI for lawyers, two if, different yeah, AI for lawyers multiple. companies. There's yeah. just like a ton of them. Yeah. Um, I wrote down mostly the non-AI companies. I figured if you got into YC with a non-AI company, you're probably pretty good at your job. Like, you're mm -hmm. probably pretty good. So I'm like sort of trying to, <laughs> like, it's 30-second pitches, man. You, like, don't yeah. really learn anything. Yeah. It's, it's, I feel like we're entering into the zone where all the obvious low-hanging fruit is coming off the board, right? Like, you look at, like Loom AI's uh, launch or even like HubSpot AI's launch. And it's all the obvious stuff at this point. Yep. So yeah, it's all the o too. obvious yep. stuff. Like summarize this, auto title X, you know, um, uh, you know, query, you know, be able to query, you know, Y conversation. And I, like, I think we're nearing the end of that curve. And so it's it, it'll be interesting to see what all these companies do next like what what is like what what mm -hmm. what exists after that because yeah right. the, the obvious roadmap stuff it feel that those boxes feel checked at this point yeah so yeah yeah llm powered search summarization even text generation it just seems in, it, like it's about to be integrated into every every big every box product though uh, i did very have, very quickly i did have a magical moment even, yesterday with it with uh, gongs where somebody shared a clip with me like a 30 second clip and the customer said something and I was like oh what do they mean by that I wonder if they talked about it more in the conversation but I didn't want but it was like an hour it was like an hour long conversation right, um, right. and I didn't really want to listen to the whole thing so I used their little you can basically query the conversation and I was like when the customer said X did they talk about it anymore? And if so, like, what did they mean by it? Uh, and it like spit out a pretty good explanation of it and, huh. um, and like went deeper on it. Now, the problem was, is I didn't trust it. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I, so I went to the salesperson and I was like, Hey, the AI said this, does this sound right from what you remember from, from the conversation? So I had to like gut check it. Um, but I thought it was, uh, but the thing I didn't, I didn't, afterwards I was like, wait a second, I probably should have just asked the AI of like, well, where did they say that in the conversation or, right. But I didn't, I just like didn't have that habit yet, which is, it's just still, it's just still weird. Um, and even though like, I'm like trying to like force myself into it. So I don't know, it'll be interesting to see what, what the next wave of roadmap items is for all these folks. Yeah, for instance, I mean, Microsoft has basically said they're going to put GPT yeah. everything, right? So the first pass isn't going to be that far from what you would imagine put GPT in everything it's yeah. going to look like, right? Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. I think the interesting thing I've found on the startup side is that um, building for verticals is like a known strategy now. Right. That like there are lots of verticals that aren't tech enabled and they are actually oddly large markets. And if you can address them, 
you can build a big company. And the other thing is that AI makes it a lot more efficient, maybe to build these products too. And so you can do them with smaller teams and those kinds of things. And so like everything is starting to feel kind of red oceany. And I don't like meaning like there are, I bet there are 20 different companies building uh, AI tools for lawyers in very specific, in, in specific use cases. Right. So it is interesting that like building for small niche verticals used to be a way to like avoid competition. <laughs> it, uh, it seems like that's also just because of the number of companies being built, the number of people or founders, the number of people that these tools have enabled. It's just, it is, it's fascinating to think about from an investment standpoint. I think awesome products are going to be built, but like, how do you, I guess you just go back to first principles, like pick great founders you believe can win even in a highly competitive environment. This feels like the kind of environment that's going, that's probably, I, I haven't looked at any of the YC pitches, so uh, I can't really say this for sure, but okay. uh, I imagine a lot of those are opportunity seeking entrepreneurs versus the idea in the business is coming from a like organic problem that they have intimate experience with. And those are the ones that always scare me uh, because I just like right. these things have eventually hit tough times. And, and I, if you don't have yeah. that intimate connection with the problem, I think, I think people just burn, burn out, spin out, or like they, they don't, they don't fight through it. But I imagine there's tons of entrepreneurs who are like AI, AI, like all that kind of stuff. And they're like NYC and they're like, Oh, I got to find a niche. Oh, this, like, I don't have any experience in this little lawyer thing, right. but it seems good to me. Right. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go, yeah. you know, after that opportunity, I, my guess is 98% of those, uh, die. So my first filter, if I was looking at those companies, would just be looking at the founder's background, right? And that might Yeah, like what in your totally. background gives you a unique world? My example around this, this is always yeah, uh, is always Pillpack and the founder of Pillpack, which is, you know, yep. he had like a long family history of they were all pharmacists. They owned pharmacies. He was a pharmacist, pharmacist himself. I'm pretty sure he was supposed to take over the family biz or something like that. And his experience was certainly not in internet startups, but he had that that connection. Eventually, they yeah. sold you know for a billion dollars to to Amazon. But it makes me think. Okay, I know this isn't supposed to be the podcast, so, but but okay, so. Okay, so, no, but we're so now you have working. <laughs> now you have a couple things happening all at once. So you have all of the established players, the HubSpots, the Looms, the Zooms, the the Gongs, all of them, Slack, right? Slack. All right, so they're checking out all the obvious yeah. road roadmap items, right? And um and and I think those features are probably are actually driving engagement and monetization from what I've heard, you know, secondhand. Yeah, so so, but they're getting to a place of like, well, what's like, what's next? On the other hand, you've got all of these new players uh, where, you know, from everything that I've seen, all these folks, all the new players to the scene are having retention problems. They don't have an existing product that already has retention that they're adding AI features to, which is kind of like the first group. Right. Um, and so now you have like all of these, these kind of new entrants that are having you know, are using the technology and having retention issues, which is also going to force another like next wave or like getting, getting to the non-obvious hard 
problems, un- hard new unique problems that can be solved with this technology. So I don't know. I think the next, my guess is we probably go, go through a pretty big lull for the next six to 12 months before some, some new stuff emerges. Mm. Or maybe there's so much activity we get there sooner. I don't know. It's hard to say. It feels a lot like the early days of the mobile apps <laughs> where like at first there were there was lots of stuff happening, lots of activity. It was clear this was the future, so to speak, right? That like we would be using our phones for lots of important tasks. And but there was a lot of like we people hadn't figured it out yet. There was a lot of low retention stuff. There was a lot of like one-off apps there was a lot of things and then people started to figure it out from the hipstamatics there were instagrams or from you know uh you know i worked at runkeeper a health and fitness company was like people started to figure out what does it mean to be an app and on all the time and instead of being just satellites for websites right like satellite input devices for websites it was like no this is the whole thing like the mobile app is the center of the universe um and you know, obviously, on-demand economy came out of mobile uh, on both the supply side and the demand side Then, in a way that it wouldn't have been able to before. How long did that take? I think, let's see, when did App Store release? Yeah. 2009? I feel like it took a few years. Like that? Yeah. It took like two years, probably. 2012, maybe almost as far as, like, when's Uber? 13? Mm, I think so, yeah. 2013, 2014 era? So yeah, it took a lot. It took a while. There were some first movers that became big winners. I'm sure. I I'm having a hard time thinking of what they are, but there was there are advantages to being early, and there are some late movers. Well, the, the first wave was just all the existing web players trying to copy and paste their existing product into mobile, which didn't really work, and a lot of those yep. folks got disrupted by those that took a mobile first approach. But it took a while. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, it 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 took a little while, wow. and so. I don't know. It's an interesting question. If if you're if you're the CPO of one of these companies, you know that we've been talking about the the Zooms, the HubSpots, all that kind of stuff. Do you? It's like, do you have teams, you know, checking off the obvious roadmap items, and then in parallel, have a team exploring like bigger, newer like more disruptive things that we can create with this technology because you want to hedge off that bet or you you want to you want to hedge off that risk i would say um and it's just it's one of these things of like how do you keep momentum on your existing thing while while exploring the disrupt the disruption from within i don't know if the right answer yet is put ai on everything have every team working but that's what everybody's doing it seems like the expertise <laughs> that, yeah, I know. I do think that there's a benefit in having, so I, I listened to a talk, I uh, went to an event the other day and heard a talk from um, this woman who runs design at Zillow. She's like the mm-hmm. chief design officer at Zillow. And the way that they design, they said that they're doing it is they have like a, I don't remember what they call it, maybe mm-hmm. red team, blue team thing. And the blue team stuff is like every team has like incremental, obvious AI type things that fit into their existing roadmap, mm-hmm. and you should do that. Like you, this is a big change. You need to look at your roadmap. It needs to be part of your roadmap reviews, your regular process, etc. You need to start integrating this stuff into your roadmap. The, uh, the call that in your parlance the obvious stuff. 
Now, on the other side, she said there is a separate team that's sort of like an internal skunk works whose job it is to like disrupt Zillow. Like they're like the internal red team, you know, uh, imagine you're a startup trying to kill Zillow. <laughs> what would you mm -hmm. do with AI to do it? And their job is to like make a lot of stuff that fails and try things and experiment and take bigger bets and then figure out what gets put into blue team world eventually. And I think that's probably, I think that's a relatively good approach. I can't think of a good reason not to do that. I think the only problem there becomes that like everybody thinks the red team stuff is the cool stuff to work on at the company and nobody wants to work on normal things, which certainly happens. Um, but it is probably the best way to maintain your existing business and also not get yeah. disrupted at yeah. the same time. Well, I'll, I can dive in. I think I spend a lot of my time every day on Twitter. And uh, honestly, it's a social network that's been really good to me. I've met a lot of really cool people, people like yourself and others and people in our network on Twitter. I've you know, gotten a lot of interesting opportunities out of it. I've been able to expand my own personal brand, et cetera. But Twitter, man, has just been changing really, really rapidly. And a lot of stuff is happening there. And what I really want to talk about is um, sort of, well, two things. One is Twitter's monetization and the changes that they've made around it and the impacts that it's had on their uh, just sort of the behavior and how that affects, like has affected the behavior of some of their top creators. And second, I want to talk a little bit about this enterprise verified organizations feature and hiring. Uh, that is another feature that they're uh, supposedly launching soon. So to start, I want to start with a little, a little. So one thing that I have been seeing is a lot of posts like this one on the left from Alex Lieberman which he basically says, my Twitter reach is fucked. Posted <laughs> the same thing on X and LinkedIn, and here's what the stats are. Now, at the bottom, this one actually ended up going pretty viral on Twitter because it's about Twitter. But this is just one of, I wasn't able to dig them all up, but probably about a dozen posts over the past week or two, month or two, that I've seen where people are just fundamentally complaining about their reach on Twitter and their ability to reach their audiences and the amount of engagement. And on the other side, there's sort of this growing trend of people saying that LinkedIn is cool now. And I'm certainly hearing this from my network, that they are moving their business-oriented engagement towards LinkedIn, which, I don't know, Brian, do you see this? Is this happening for you? Personally? 100% happening for me. And I 100% agree that LinkedIn, a month ago, everybody was Two months ago, everybody was talking about threads uh, and Facebook, but LinkedIn by a long shot has been the biggest beneficiary of all of the chaos with Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. It has not been any of these alternatives uh, to Twitter. It has not been Facebook. It has not been any of these other social platforms, which is just fascinating to see that everybody can, everybody's shifting over to LinkedIn as as the biggest beneficiary. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's driving this, I've been thinking about like why why are people moving? And one is just reach. Okay, like you post the thing, you count the number of thing people that are coming to it. But I actually think there's a slightly deeper thing happening here, and it's a lesson I learned uh building at Slack. Um which is 
that when you're building for people whose businesses rely on your product, there is a different bar for how you ship, how you talk about, and how the the predictability that those customers expect from you when they build on top of your platform. And for a lot of reasons, Twitter has taken a lot of crap over the past decade for being really, really slow to do things. I mean, thank you, Elon and crew, for making an edit tweet button. Like, yes, I pay dollars a month for it or whatever it is. But like, they've been slow and sort of notoriously slow. But I think that this lack of predictability, creators are effectively running their businesses. I, I don't know if I would say creator. Like, personalities on Twitter, people who rely on it for their reach, uh, expect things to work in predictable ways. And networks that stop, stop being predictable, stop being something that you want to invest in. And I think LinkedIn, while it has sort of this like, uh, you know, I don't know, businessy sort of sheen to it. Uh, and is sort of the least interesting. They don't have comedians on LinkedIn or celebrities or whatever. Uh, if that's the kind of stuff you're talking about, it's a way more predictable place to do it. And it seems like they have done an excellent job of building their monetization model in a way that is not at odds with their network and network effects. And at the same time being really predictable. Uh, and I think that people are starting to feel that and starting to move over there for things that are business oriented. It's predictable now, but we know how this game ends, right? And like every social platform ends in the same thing, which is they do something to, you know, F over the creators, uh, um, where they, they use the creators to build the audience, build the engagement, but essentially some, something at some point becomes at odds. They change the algorithm they change the ad format, like something ends up happening. Um, and like reach gets, uh, you know, reach ends up, ends up kind of, kind of declining. I think it's different in Twitter's case and X's case right now, because it, it seems honestly just for different reasons. It's, it, it is interesting to kind of see this, uh, shift over. And my guess is Twitter is also seeing this, right. And which gets maybe to where the monetization idea yeah. came around from jobs. I, I I don't know, but yeah, I'll let you introduce that. Yeah. So the interesting thing that this is my outside analysis and look, I'm not a Twitter expert and it's, it's pretty transparent. Uh, Elon and crew are pretty good about talking about what's going on, but their advertising revenue has suffered pretty dramatically. The company was not profitable. They have spent a lot of time both cutting the workforce, et cetera, but also trying to add new monetization. And one of those things is the Twitter blue subscription, which is for individuals, right? And that's basically replacing the blue check, adding some premium features, et cetera. And I think in general, while there's been a lot of noise about that, it's been, I don't know how successful it's been, but I don't think there are like, except for the rate limiting. So I don't know how many people know this, but Twitter started implementing some rate limiting for a variety of reasons I'm not going to get into. It actually hurt their power users the most. And you weren't rate limited if you paid. And I, well, other than that decision, which I think was a poor one personally, I think because in a social network that is powered by a small percentage of, of people posting to drive the engagement of the 98 people, 8% of people who are casually reading. 
throttling those folks is probably not a good idea. And I'm not sure that trying to just crank monetization out of them is the right thing. Um, but in general, seems like it's fine. It's kind of working. People can verify their identity, et cetera. But the other thing they're doing is trying to build this product called verified organizations. So um, let's pull up the anyway, uh, verified organizations is a thousand dollars a month for a company to be able to say, to prove that they are who they are, to be able to add affiliated accounts so that people can not just tweet as them, but be associated with them. So like Andreessen Horowitz has all of their partners and employees listed as affiliates, um, those kinds of things. Uh, and third, it looks like they want to launch this hiring feature and, uh, it will be, I don't know if it's part of that thousand dollars a month, just a value add, or if it will be more money on top of that. But the hiring feature basically does one very simple thing, which is let's post your jobs on Twitter. So on the left here's X hiring. Sorry. I keep calling it Twitter. It's called X now. I know. I was going to ask you how long it's going (laughs) to take you to rewire that. Uh, I think it's going to be like alphabet Google. I don't know if I'm ever going to do it. So the X hiring beta, you can feature your most critical roles. So top five roles, I believe, is the way it works here. The best example I could find was from Bloom Institute. Um, they're hiring a head of admissions and a finance manager, and they have that direct directly listed on their account. And then you can see through, you can click on the affiliates here and see who the associated accounts are. Um, Austin, the CEO, along with a couple of other people who are associated with that. And so I think this is a relatively straightforward uh, business type feature, but I don't know, Brian, my thoughts, you're a CEO. Would you list your open roles on Twitter and would you pay $1,000 a month for that? Do you think this is something that's just a value add for people who need the other verification features? Or do you think this is the kind of thing that would actually drive new monetization? I think personally, $1,000 feels expensive to me right now uh, per, per month relative. I think about like the other tools that we probably pay about $12,000 per year for, and they feel much more core to driving our business. And so that's going to be things like our CRM, um, our email automation system, some of our tech infrastructure, uh, all all of those types of things. And for some reason, it just doesn't feel like that. My perceived value doesn't doesn't feel like that. Especially yeah. because I kind of think through the the growth funnel <laughs> for this, which is right. like, okay, we post something on our company page, which by the way companies are not getting distribution on these platforms right now. Like people do not follow companies anymore. People follow people in right now. As, as far as I can tell, you cannot post the jobs on, uh, it's, it's on a company account. Yeah. It's not, it's not an affiliate account. Okay. So that's number one, the top of funnel kind of sucks. And then person, the person has to click through to the profile, then see the jobs click through on that job, right? Like it, and then apply. And so I just, I think through that thing and I'm like, well, I just feels like the impact of that is going to be so small, so small yep. for, and is not worth it for me paying, you know, a thousand dollars. I'm going to pay a thousand dollars per month for some other value. It does kind of feel like from the outside that X is looking at, you know, what do people pay money for across 
a bunch of different social platforms yeah. and let's try those things, right? And certainly yeah. people pay an F ton of money for job postings everywhere, even though they are not effective, which I think we should talk about, which is one of my comments that I want to talk about separately. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but that's my perception. I think the one question that came to mind, which I honestly feel like is I'm stretching here. I'm really stretching here is one of Twitter's core problems on their ad platform. One of the reasons that it hasn't been um, super ROI positive for a bunch of folks is that for a ton of their user accounts, they do not know who you are. They know what you might be right. interested in, but the identity on Twitter in a lot, if for a lot of accounts is a, anonymous, it's not your real identity. You haven't plugged in a lot of that information. And that is very different from LinkedIn or the Facebook ecosystem, yeah. which knows much more about your demographic data, which when combined with the interest data creates like this one plus one equals three scenario for advertisers and why it can be so effective. And so I looked at this and I was like, ooh, like maybe, maybe they're like planting some stepping stones for reasons to give users reasons to start giving them more information oh, about who they are like their real identity it's certainly not built that way because they just kind of link you off into wherever you've like posted the job uh today but i was trying to put through like the sequencing of like hey like where this might go and how that might connect to a core problem they're thinking about internally and that's the one that i like I, but I feel like I'm stretching. Yeah. I, I'm, I feel, I definitely feel like I'm stretching on this one. Yeah. So you talked through it from the growth funnel perspective. The question that I kept asking is like, who is this for? Like, who is the narrowest definition of ideal customer profile on both sides of this marketplace, both on the hiring side, the enterprises who want to post this and the job seekers. And it's sort of a tricky thing because it's only a couple of jobs, right? Five jobs that you can post. As far as I know right now, there's no search. So it's like, who? what is it for? And I think on one side, if it's just tech companies, for instance, uh, if I'm a tech company and I want I want my job to be everywhere, right? I don't have like exclusivity. I'm, I'm either going to be on LinkedIn or on Twitter, right? You're probably going to do both. And LinkedIn right now has everybody. Every job searcher in, the, in tech is going to type that search into LinkedIn at some point when they're looking for a job. So I have to be there anyway. So it's not like pulling revenue away. The question would be like, is it a value add on the other side? I think for bigger organizations, if I have a thousand, two thousand, five thousand open jobs, like what five am I choosing to put on Twitter? Mm -hmm. Like who That's am I point. most likely to attract? And the best I can come up with is like social media management type people, people who are like influencers who want to like get paid to do that work. And so maybe there's a niche there um, that could be kind of interesting. But I think of this, I think as I look at this, this is what I would call a filler feature for the verified organization's product, in not, a, bundle. not yeah. a leader yeah. feature in the bundle. So a leader feature is something that people pay for. Like it is the thing that attracts them to the paid product. It's the must have. It's the reason they buy. And then fillers are usually other things that increase the value of that product for you. Maybe make it make sense at the price point 
or improve retention of the paid product because I start to engage with those features. So I'll use an example from you know, Slack, the message history is the leader feature. That's the reason most people convert. They want to be able to have a full archive of their stuff. And then things like, you know, uh, at the time, like group video calling, although now, you know, huddle, those, I don't know exactly what's in the paid uh, feature, but things like uh, advanced search or other kinds of things, they're all, they're, they're fillers. They're additional features and value that you get. But the main reason you convert is this. So I don't, my analysis of this, my takeaway is I don't think the Twitter hiring is going to be like a meaningful driver of paid conversion. I can't come up with an ideal customer for whom this is a perfect fit. It's a must have versus their other options. In the world of commodity stuff, there's like all the Indeeds and ZipRecruiters and all those sorts of things or LinkedIn search or an ATS, et cetera, which they integrate with. It's probably a decent value add to make your profile look kind of nice, add a couple of jobs, maybe hire social media people or key roles where you know those folks follow you on Twitter. But I don't see it as a leader and I don't think it's like gonna like, personally, I don't think it will dramatically change the monetization model for these verified organizations. That's sort of my main takeaway for it. I guess my question with like even including it in the bundle is, so jobs is the core of LinkedIn. It is the white hot center for them from a revenue perspective on the recruiter or, or or job hosting side. And so I think when you look at attacking um, competitors like that, you have to attack them in a way where you're doing something that they would never, ever do. Uh, right. other, otherwise, just you're entering a massive uphill battle. And we had this debate while I was at HubSpot, because one of the projects I worked on was the CRM that we launched. And there's this huge debate internally about how we should launch it. Like, But it kind of came down to, should we charge for it or should we make it free? The idea came up that we should make it free. And there was this, it was just, it was a very heated debate internally about this. We ultimately decided to make it free. And part of that was, that was something that Salesforce was never going to do. They were never going to make their CRM, their bread and butter, a free yeah. product. Had we gone to market with even a lower cost than Salesforce, it wouldn't have mattered. We wouldn't have been like featured. It wouldn't have been like feature parity at right. the time. Like we we weren't really attacking the product in a in a differentiated enough of ways. Now that ended up being a really good bet over the long term. That was not obvious at the same time. But I look at the same thing here. And I'm like, all right, well, if Twitter wants to use this <laughs> as some sort of carrot or s some sort of strategic item, I don't know. Like, I, I'm like, I charging for it, or uh, it, it, it's a, it's a, uh, um, it is currently a product and feature that is is far and above, uh, like far and below worse than <laughs> like the features elsewhere, right? So. I think that was like one of one of the things when I looked at it was like, this just doesn't feel like they are attacking it in a way that LinkedIn or these other folks aren't, you know, they're, they're doing something that these other folks aren't going to do. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. It's like, you either have to do something because they can't do it for business reasons. They can't do it technically. They can't do it because they don't have the network 
or they can't do it because their incumbent, their existing customers would never allow for it. Like if you were built on a fundamentally different data model for the CRM that is better for a certain kind of business, but bad for all of (laughs) CRM's existing customers, maybe. And I think that's the other thing is um, cheaper, but worse rarely wins free, but worse can win. Mm. (laughs) Oh, I like that. I like that as a rule that that's a good, (laughs) that is a good tweet right there. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That probably won't get distribution. So yeah. yeah. (laughs) Last, last, my personal last takeaway on Twitter stuff. It's been fascinating to watch the pendulum on Twitter go from, I can't tell you what they released for a decade. Like nothing about the product was meaningfully different Hmm. to changing things hourly on a whim, all kinds of stuff at the same time. And I think that as far as I can tell, Twitter usage is as high as it's ever been, at least according to the types of, you know, maybe it's cherry pick data, et cetera, that the new CEO is talking about. I'm still there every day, probably just as much as I was ever. I'm like, it's hard to break. It's a very anti-fragile system on some level. This was actually my counterpoint uh, that I wanted to bring up as well, which is I do think the common external narrative at the moment is just a lot of criticism. It's like, oh, like this is dumb. This is dumb. This is, this is dumb. But I think in the macro, people miss the situation that X is in and specifically Elon is in, which is they had a stagnant product they started to create some like huge revenue gaps that they have to start to make up in a short period of time. And you you have to swing the pendulum. You have to take a bunch of swings at that. And by nature, taking a bunch of those swings means you're going to have a bunch of failures. And so as part of this is I think people forget, like they might look at uh, the counterpart of something like Facebook. They forget all the failures that Facebook went through. And I created a short, my guess is a lot of our listeners are probably too young to remember some of these, but I think you'll remember some of these, but this was, a, Oh, you have a list. You I, have a, list? I have a very, <laughs> I have a list that I got from a liter, a 10 second Google search, but here's, here's the things that Facebook tried and didn't work out. Facebook gifts, Facebook credits, create creative labs where they were creating like their own applications, the Facebook po- poke, Facebook beacon, do you remember FBML, their language that they yeah, had? Yeah. yeah, the platform, the early platform language. Yeah, yeah. I built FBML apps. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Facebook Spaces, right? These are the ones from like a four to five year period in, I think, like the early like 2010s. I wasn't even able to find, you know, some of the more recent ones. I think there was also multiple stabs at Marketplace before Marketplace actually ended up working. And and so I don't know. It's just I think these things get lost in the narrative that through through the trajectory of these very successful companies, there's actually quite a few failures uh, along the way. And I think we're just in this moment. And I give a lot of credit to uh, like the team at X of taking a lot of these swings, even though you or I might actually look at any one of these individual swings and say, mm, this doesn't make sense to make sense from the outside. But I actually think the thing that matters most is that they are taking a bunch of these yeah. swings and 
Uh, because that's literally the only thing that you can do in one of these situations. I think especially for all the product managers that are listening, these ecosystems have so many second and third order effects, much more than a SaaS product does. And it's probably one of the biggest differences in when you're thinking through product strategy for a product like X versus a product, <clears throat> some SaaS product. And it's a, it's a bit of a curse, I think, uh, because I, I think it can, you know, really stall decision making, which is where I think historical Twitter yeah. was in, is that I think they understood that there was all these second and third order effects. And there was probably a contributing factor to them you know, not really shipping much. Uh, and because you're kind of working through so many of these hypothetical like ecosystem effects. And so the, the and, and then you swing the pendulum in the other direction where they're at now and you're shipping a lot of stuff and you're not really sure how these second and third order effects are gonna, going to play out. I, I think it's a really intriguing and complicated um, part of, product at products like this that doesn't necessarily yeah. exist in other spaces. Can I detour for a quick story about second or third order? Yeah, that <laughs> yeah are, let's that do I it. I think was super yeah. interesting. So I worked at Instacart for a while, um, and this actually happened after I left. But a big part of like Instacart is basically like, how do you manage the supply and demand? And how does how much a person delivering the groceries get paid? drive prioritization of certain deliveries? And how do you make sure that on the customer side, you have some control over things like fees, tips, et cetera. And so I'm probably misremembering this a little bit, but you can edit a tip after it's been ordered, after it's been delivered, which kind of makes sense, right? Maybe I got bad service. Maybe I got really good service. I want to either increase my tip or lower my tip based on the experience that I had. Maybe I have a bad review, et cetera, but also to lower friction and make sure that shoppers get tipped at checkout. You say what you think your tip should be, right? So if you're ordering a DoorDash, you say what the tip is up front, but for Instacart, because these tips can be very large, right? Because these are really big orders, right? Hundreds, 200, $300 level. You could change them. And so my understanding, and I kind of watched this on Twitter, I don't have any inside information of this, but I got into a little fight with people about it on Twitter, <laughs> was that during COVID, demand for Instacart just absolutely skyrocketed, right? Like mm. totally skyrocketed. And part of how I believe a shopper could choose whether to take an order or not was how much they were going to get paid. So some people figured out that if they put obscenely high tips in, they could jump to the beginning of the line, oh. get a delivery, then edit it down to zero and basically screw their shopper, screw the system, but get their order delivered quickly. Mm. Not just quickly, but like get it delivered at all. And honestly, this stinks. It stinks for the shopper. It stinks for Instacart. It stinks for the buyer. It's bad behavior, right? And a lot of the conversation about it was like, who are the dumb product and design people who didn't think of this loophole and figure out that it was going to happen, et cetera. And I was just like, this is an abnormal moment in an abnormally complicated system that drove a certain incentive on the, the demand side because of the really limited supply 
to do a bad behavior and then get away with it. And, you know, if you were to design around that third order, A, I don't think you could game out. I think it would be very hard to game this out, right? Like in a priori. I think you could think about, okay, look, I'm a relatively smart person. I probably could have thought of like, oh, there's a chance that someone could like lower their tip. But if it happens only every now and then, you deal with it in customer support, you pay back the tip, you fire the buyer, the, the the demand side. You just say like, you don't get to use this platform anymore. But if it starts to happen a lot and it's like actually changing the overall delivery dynamics because people have learned about this, it's now a huge problem. So I just think it's like, it's an interesting story of like something that not only are there first, second, and third order effects of any kind of decision you make, Sometimes those things depend on the world around you and the moment in time too, and the incentive shifting that suddenly this kind of bad behavior becomes worth doing. And so like you actually like, just like, it is really hard to predict this stuff. Um, And I think the best thing to do is be in a shipping mindset because then you can fix it quickly instead of like, you know, being like, oh no, now what? Let's spend two months trying to figure out how to solve this problem or shut our business down or whatever. So um, a good example, I think these things are unpredictable. They're really, really hard to do well. Yeah. All right, should we move to YouTube? Yeah, let's talk about YouTube. What do you have to, what What do you want to do with YouTube, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, there was a recent uh, Financial Times article that apparently there is a internal conversation happening um, within YouTube among senior leaders that their uh, new shorts feature, which is essentially more bite-sized content, more TikTok-style uh, content designed for mobile interfaces, is at risk of cannibalizing the long-term, the long-form video content that YouTube is known for and uh, their history. And uh, particularly, they're worried that about the monetization. Long-form video creates more ad inventory, more kind of TV-like ad spot inventory, which you can charge more for, um, where the short-form video doesn't necessarily do that. And they're just seeing more of that usage start to shift over to this uh, this short-form content. And um, I think this is like a interesting question on multiple vectors but i I think before we go into that i one of the things that really kind of came to mind was uh this article that um ravi Mehta, who was the chief product officer at uh tinder and then um was uh at a few other places before that let me see if i can pull this up he called this. He talked about the this uh, concept of the entertainment value curve, which I'll explain in a second for okay. everybody that's uh, listening. But um, one of the things that he identifies is that this isn't just a battle to go against TikTok, but the core engagement loop of all of these platforms is this creation consumption conversation loop, the three C's. Right? Uh, people create on the platform, um, and then the more creation there is, the more consumption there is, the more consumption there is the more conversation or essentially feedback, reacting, commenting, which kind of um, encourages more creation. And essentially what YouTube is doing with all of these shorts is that they're incentivizing more creation by making um, a different shorter format that's lower friction, which helps increase consumption, especially on mobile stuff, encourages more conversation and, and so on and so forth. 
And what they're what YouTube's really doing is they're moving along this what Ravi calls the entertainment value curve. So if you're listening, think about just like a simple graph where on the y-axis there's uh, the social value that a user gets from the platform or a piece of content, and then on the x-axis there's the production value of the content, right? So how high is the production value? And there's essentially this efficient frontier, this this curve, this uh, this bending curve, where uh, there's different products that live along this curve. So you can think in the upper left-hand corner of this graph, high social value, super low production value is something like a messaging product like Snapchat, where you're just sending kind of snaps back and forth uh, for like between friends. And in the lower right-hand corner, um, where you have high production value but super low social value, is you have something like Netflix, where it's like all of this professionally created, long-form stuff, but there really isn't any social interaction between the consumers of that content, or there's no relationship between mm. the consumer and the creator. And of course, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube... Uh, kind of live in the middle of this. Well, it's interesting. Core YouTube lives sort of in the middle of this this curve, where it's um, it's more production value than something like a like a TikTok, uh, and but it's lower uh, social value. That's you know most of their user generated content in the long form video. That's where that lived. And then over time, they kind of shifted down the curve a little bit more towards Netflix by bringing on premium partners and premium creators that they then, you know, created YouTube premium and, and some other YouTube TV and some other folks down and YouTube shorts kind of shifts up the curve towards TikTok, which is like shorter form and like higher, higher social value. And so occupying more of this curve, I think is that the question is, is like, is it uh, like a much bigger net positive from a usage and uh, monetization monetization standpoint. And so I thought this was like an interesting framework to think this through. But the challenge is, is that, uh, you know, what a lot of people are equating this to, which is Instagram moving from photos to stories, is I actually don't think that is the right ana like analogy. With Instagram okay. and stories... It was clearly not positive for a few reasons. One is that Instagram had this problem where uh, everybody felt like to post something, it had to be perfect. You know, the perfect right. filter with the beach in the background and like all, yep. all of those types of things. And that was yeah, and they actually saw that in the data, right? They saw that in the data. And then in into that to that loop, that that creation, uh, that creation consumption conversation loop, it was creating friction in that loop. And so what IG stories did is it actually lowered that friction where it was like, Hey, this is like a temporary, uh, it's an ephemeral piece of content. Um, that's designed to be, you know, like not that like perfect filtered, uh, photo as part of it, you know, it's going to disappear. And so as a result, it actually helped lower that friction, increase um, contribution, increase uh, consumption, as well as adding that video format, create it, opened up some additional monetization in, and ad inventory. So, but I think my question is uh, on YouTube and shorts is uh, a few things. One is that I, this one doesn't 
I don't know if this is actually increasing creators and actually do their core creators, are they the right creators to create the same type of things as shorts? I think that's like kind of question one on my mind. Question two is, I think there is like a real question of, well, uh, it certainly will probably cannibalize some usage, maybe not positive, but I kind of see the point of like, actually, eh, the more usage that shifts over here, like the lower we're going to be able to monetize them and how we're going to do that. But I think my third question is, even if those things are true and other things are true, do they even have a choice? Or is it like they have to do this because of like consumer consumer trends? And so, uh, so anyways, th- those are a few questions when I, when I'm looking at this, which is like, is, is this, is this one of those almost like mental masturbation conversations internally <laughs> because, because it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't matter in the end. I think what's really interesting is sort of the, the trend of YouTube from being, you know, basically I just heard this on the acquired podcast, but apparently like until very relatively recently, less than a decade ago, more than half of YouTube video views were on embeds on other websites. I didn't oh, wow. know that. I did not. That's know that wild. And they've really shifted that the algorithm, making YouTube a destination, having follows subscribers, making it more social, really leaning into that has made it doing recommendations. All those sorts of things have like dramatically shifted like YouTube's usage. Most of my YouTube usage is on youtube.com. I will like go to YouTube and see if I can find something to watch. You know, I, I do that sometimes. I have a couple people I follow. I like watch those things. Um, what's interesting is my experience with shorts is it's a lot of the same stuff that's on reels and on TikTok. Like it's the same exact videos mm-hmm. like moved over from the same exact creators who are on those other places. Not the, not, that often from existing creators on YouTube who are also publishing shorts. And do you think that it is a different kind of person? And so what leverage do they have is really like, make it so you get paid more. Like, I don't know what it would be. I'd have to think, you know, TikTok reels, Reels, it seems like, has started to get unique content because people with Instagram followings are a natural, like, will do video, et cetera, and that network has, like, worked for them. So I think without figuring out how to get their existing creator base to really start engaging with that format and then using that to bring on new creators, I'm worried that it would be bad for them, too, at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to do it, and it would make you undifferentiated from other existing products. So it just becomes a third, a third product that does roughly the same thing, like a, you know, scrolly short video thing. I don't see how it's different yet. And I don't know what percentage of YouTube is on web, but it's probably a lot. So they also would have to move a lot of people over to mobile to make this like more successful. I, I, I don't know what the numbers are there. I'm sure they have a lot of YouTube, uh, YouTube mobile usage. Do you think but, um, do you think this changes the social yeah. value of YouTube, right? So like with the long form videos, it's you, you don't really have a social connection to anybody else on the platform with your friends and um or even no. kind of with the creators. Um I I maybe have, a little with a creator, but maybe, that's about it. Yeah, 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 it's it's a, it it feels like a bit of a it, it feels like a bit of a stretch. And so I on TikTok in and I'm not I banned myself from TikTok, so I, I haven't been actively using it for the past. I'm 
I can't use it either. Yeah. It's bad for me. <laughs> but I think my observations from a bunch of people usage is that there's more social value through the short form videos, more kind of connections to, or that conversation in, in Ravi's fra framework of creation consumption conversation, um, like between friends and stuff. And so is, does, does YouTube's product and usage start to shift more that? Do they even need to do that? Or is it still strictly about this? kind of single player massive consumption yeah i think it's a fundamentally it feels like a different network topology so to speak right like where the creator consumer overlap is a lot higher in these like instagram instagram's a good example Lots of people post, lots of people read, right? The like normal one, what are they? The one nine ninety rule, like 1% of people create, 9% interact and 90% watch. That's not true on a modern social network, like a Facebook or an Instagram, right? It's maybe more true with things like Reels and TikTok that the shift is more that way. But YouTube is like extreme. Mm -hmm. Like it's a broadcast platform, right? Like Mr. Beast has millions and millions and millions and millions of followers. There aren't that many of him. It's really strong power law. That's true on other networks too. But like there is a little bit more back and forth, like social communication, people emulating, building their own things. But like, I don't think a lot of people, I think people aspire to be YouTube creators, but I don't think a lot of kids are just like building YouTubes, even though only 12 people are seeing them. The friction is too high. So I think it's somewhat inevitable that, you're going to move towards more short formats. I just, I worry what it does for their differentiation and like, okay, so what is YouTube's unique take on that? Like what is different about, why would I choose to create on YouTube and not on the others and not just have it be like, Hey, I wish it was a checkbox published to YouTube shorts too, which is fine for YouTube, but probably not great because they don't have direct creator relationships in those, in those situations. Right. Yeah. I mean, their 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 ad rep share is the highest out of all of okay. the platforms, right? I believe it's uh, forty. I always get these reversed. It's it's forty five fifty five split, and I can never remember yeah. which goes. That's pretty high. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, it, it is it is decently high, and it, it's interesting. A couple stats around this is that they they launched shorts in twenty twenty one, so it's been about two ish years, yeah. maybe like a little bit longer. I don't know how they measure this stat, but they say there's been there's two billion users on shorts. I don't know if that's like a cumulative sum of like everybody that's watched one is it two billion active users, something like that. But it's it's pretty it's pretty wild that um, that there that that is a very fast growth curve. And I think part of the this conversation that has happened internally is that they did report the first ever quarterly decline in ad revenue. Um, earlier, like earlier this year. But I think that kind of goes back to my point of like, of, you know, I just, I don't think, I don't think they actually have a choice if this is where the consumer behavior and attention yeah. is going, then they need to play into that trend. You can't, you, it, you can't ever fight the user. You, you kind of have to go with the, the fast moving water here. And, and so I would expect my, my guess is they will figure out if there's one company that's going to figure out how to monetize you through ads, it's probably going to be Google. Uh, and, and so my guess is I, I would, I wouldn't be surprised if there's like this J curve on the ad revenue as they, yeah. um, as they, as they figure it out. 
Uh, and so then it becomes, I think, an interesting question for TikTok, which is, okay, if Google really does figure that out and the rev shares are really that much greater, then how does TikTok, uh, how does TikTok respond, respond into that? And the interesting thing too is in the Financial Times article, we'll post the, we'll post the uh, um, image as well, is they broke down the demographics of like minutes spent by age on all of these different platforms. And what uh, YouTube's looks like is it's like consistent uh, across all the age demographics. Actually, it's, you know, whereas, you know, TikTok is massively skewed towards uh, the earlier ages. Yeah. And I and I thought that was interesting, which is YouTube really does have a presence across all different age groups. And so one of the interesting things that might come out of this is that it, this might expose a lot of the short form video format to older age demographics who are not on 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 TikTok and stuff. So there's uh it'll be interesting to see where where this heads. What I've found interesting is also that YouTube seems to be going in both directions. So they're also launching like basically like Hulu like uh Netflix type stuff. You can get primed like movies on YouTube now. Like you can buy I think if you buy them, you can buy movies on YouTube, not YouTube TV. Uh, there's a YouTube movies and TV section that's new now. And you can watch the NFL. You can watch the NBA. Like they're starting to sign those deals, not just, again, not just on YouTube TV, the sort of separate product, but also on YouTube.com. And so it's interesting to watch this sort of go in both directions, both towards like the like, traditional media side and bringing that onto YouTube. And it makes sense why those folks would want that. YouTube's reach is massive because they have a free product, et cetera. And also towards this shorts thing. So maybe like, I'm just trying to talk myself into this a little bit is like the cannibalization of ad revenue over core YouTube videos is probably okay. Other companies have shown it's possible to monetize that short form video, right? Like Instagram makes more money, I think, because of reels than they did without reels mm -hmm. uh, or stories, et cetera. Like they are good ad formats. They are, they, they, others have figured it out. TikTok monetizes relatively well from my understanding. I think that they, like, while it might take away today because the engagement is shifting, it's just a matter of like learning, like you said, no one's going to figure out how to monetize that better than Google or Facebook or Meta or whatever. Like those companies know how to make ad formats work. So that feels short term, but it's interesting that by filling the full spectrum, there's, there's some value there to be able to monetize all of the different kinds of behaviors from all of the different age groups, use cases, et cetera, that it is a little bit more of like a mega video app. And I don't think TikTok can like release Hollywood movies, <laughs> uh, but YouTube can. So I think there's an interest. There's something interesting to that. Yeah. And I, I think if you, that they're equipped to go both directions because of where they sit. Yeah. But I think that the question, I think in, if you believe in Ravi's framework, it's like, okay, well, what comes after this? Because if you go beyond shorts, right, you go move into lower production value stuff for the user to get value out of it, then you need to increase the social value uh, of your connection with that content. Um, like that's his whole point. Um, right. And where others have failed uh, on this is that you can't do low production value, low social value, because 
that the net value to the user is not interesting. Whereas like, I don't care what my friends from high school send me on, on, you know, iMessage or whatever. I get social value out of that thing. And it could right. be the crap, you know, like if, yep. I don't, there, there needs to be production value on it. And so, and that, that feels, that feels like a huge behavior shift in how people really think about YouTube is if they wanted to push, mm-hmm. push in that direction um, and, and, and increase that, increase that yeah. social value along the way. They have shifted recently towards like, you know, connecting not fully real identity, but like your Google account as your identity on YouTube, et cetera. I think they've worked very hard to make the comments like YouTube comments are like a ju- notoriously terrible. Right. <laughs> and I think that's actually substantively less true today oh, than really? it was, you know, a decade ago. That's my understanding. I haven't dug into it, but that's something I had heard. I would love to hear from YouTube people about this, but my understanding is they like spend a lot of time on that. And some of the identity stuff is a key piece of that, that it's not as anonymous uh, as it used to be. Um, and they're filtering and changing the way those behaviors. So I think they would have to get even better at knowing who you are, having you connect with real world interactions, mm-hmm. um, real world friends, those kinds of things, and and create that social value to make that work. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. Totally different question. How do you personally feel about the trend towards the constant need of short form stimulation? <laughs> uh I'm I don't like what it does to me. I don't like what it does to me either. Um I can get caught into watching I I don't do TikTok. TikTok I don't know why. It sketches me out. My reels are slightly better because they're sort of built off of a graph of things I follow on Instagram, so they tend to be associated with my interests. Right now, it's mostly dogs, <laughs> golden retrievers, and golf. Uh, but I can just get sucked into it, and it feels really mindless. It feels like, like almost like it's caught a piece of my brain that I can't control. And worse than that, I see what it does to my kid with my kids. Like my kids are pretty. Like we have to be. I catch them sometimes, just like being really like caught in this loop of like if it's not five seconds long, I can't pay attention to it. Uh, and, um, I think it's, there's gotta be some meaningful impacts that this is having on people and their, uh, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. It just does not feel good for me. Let's put it that way. And it definitely doesn't feel good for my kids. Their attend like I can see it affect their attention spans and I don't love it. I really don't love it. I worry that like the further and further we're going to go, it's just going to be like, I'm just going to flash a red light at you and it makes you feel good. So you're just going to like watch the rough flashing red light all day is like where we're headed to, you know, or something like that. And um, I I just, I don't that's think it's good a, for society. It's like a dystopian view. I can't remember the the movie with like Luke Wilson and, and stuff, uh, but that feels like a scene uh, from that dystopia where it's yeah. <laughs> where, you, where you go and you just, literally the entertainment is watching a, a flashing red light i don't know like in, yeah. in reforge's space it's interesting to see uh it's interesting to see some of like the user feedback and of of course we get re- requests for like shorter shorter form things and and when we dive into it there's a it's clear that the users feel like they are actually 
learning and absorbing, you know, like this short form stuff in a meaningful way that, but the feeling I just get from it all is that it's like empty calories. It's, yeah. it, it's, you feel like you're getting the fuel, but it's a total fake out. Um, yeah. And, and I, that's, that's like one of, uh, this is one of my biggest questions. Uh, that's one of my biggest questions around it. Yeah, I suspect that the, there will be a class of folks who are really good at combining brevity with substance. And either, you know, I, I get a lot of comedy in my shorts or whatever we call them reels. Um, stand-up comedy is a perfect format for a, for a reel. It's just like perfect. You can tell a joke in a minute. And that like brings me real joy. So I feel like there's some... and. It makes me think because good comedy makes you think those kinds of things. So I think there are some things that feel like more full versus just like react. The incentives of the platform are to get as many like longer view views as possible. And so that drives certain kinds of behavior on the creator side. Um, and I do think that these networks have some responsibility to tune their servicing and algorithms towards, you know, Things that are less, I don't know, trashy, but then who am I to judge that? I don't know. I don't know how to define this, but uh, something about it is like, look, everyone will follow what the computer takes them to. So like, I think we do have to have some human control over like where the computer takes people because, yeah, anyway, I don't know. This is higher than my pay grade. So I think my main takeaways from the YouTube conversation I think when you're thinking through product, it's um, especially on an established product. Internally, the fight is always going to be around protecting the historical. But I just I don't think those conversations are fruitful if the user behavior is flowing in a different direction. I think I think it's it's fruitless to 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 fight those things, and your time and energy is better spent on understanding where the user behavior is flowing and how to move yourself into that, into that flow as part of it and deal with both the negative and positive consequences uh, of that in, in the short and midterm. I think the second thing and navigating those situations, by the way, is very difficult. Uh, It is, it is like not a, it is not an easy, easy thing to do. I think the second thing that when I look at, YouTube and short with is that I think it's easy to draw surface level parallels to something like Instagram and stories. But when you actually dig down deep into it, I think the the nuance of the problem that uh, these things are that Instagram solved with stories and YouTube solved with shorts are fundamentally different. And as a result, have different outcomes where I think it was much more net positive for Instagram in a much shorter period of time because it opened up existing people on that platform that were a little hesitant to uh, create. It added inventory, uh, like all those types of things. And that's not necessarily clear here with YouTube. And it probably takes them longer uh, to get through uh, that trend through that transition. Uh and I, and so I, and then I think the third thing uh, that I take away from this is that uh, 
where while I like Ravi's kind of loop of of creation consumption conversation, especially for these content in social platforms. And I think that a lot of times a lot of the work goes into reducing the friction between those steps of the loops. It's kind of like optimization activities. But at some point you hit this like efficient uh, uh, the saturation point on like what you can really do with like your existing loop. And at some point you have to establish a whole new feature or a whole new content format to address that loop in a fundamentally different way. And I think that's what you've seen YouTube do here. Actually, their first one was moving down the entertainment value curve towards more premium stuff. And now they're kind of moving up to lower production value as part of the process. So those are my takeaways. I don't know if you have any to add to that. Yeah. I just have one more, which is um, right now, it looks like a lot of shorts seem to be like copycat content from TikTok, Reels, et cetera, versus like things that YouTube creators are creating themselves. But I think that like one, we talked about the cannibalization a little bit. Those creators will adapt because they fundamentally like have audiences want to build against them and want to drive engagement the same way they've all adapted to say, Hey, like subscribe, whatever, like in their videos to adapt to like the things that are incentivized on the platform. I think that while this is a bigger shift, my suspicion is, is if this con- this trend of, of, of user behavior towards shorts continues that a lot of those creators will adapt and move. And maybe that's an opportunity for interesting, unique YouTube focused content to exist on the platform. So, um, I suspect they'll figure it out. Uh, I think, but my main takeaway is the same as yours, Brian. Um, when a wave is coming of consumer behavior, you can either decide to let it pass you by, you can try to ride it or you can try to fight it, but fighting it never works. <laughs> like you're going to get knocked over. So they either have to ride it or let it pass. So either say, Hey, we don't do this at all, which I don't think is a real option or try to find a way to ride that wave and make it work for them. And that seems to be the direction that they're headed here. And I think that's the right thing to do. It'll just be a matter of figuring out exactly how to make it feel YouTube-y and make it feel differentiated from other products in the market. All right. Thanks everybody for listening to this first episode of unsolicited feedback. Uh, Just a few uh, calls to action for you. First, uh, please subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you enjoyed this conversation to join us on either LinkedIn, or if you are a Reforge member in our member Slack, let us know your take. Like, what do you think we got right? What do you think we got wrong? And uh, we're really interested in hearing that conversation and possibly revisiting some of these topics at a later date. Um, But finally, is that we have a bunch of exciting guests coming up in uh, coming episodes uh, that will be bringing their own takes to the equation. Uh, Casey Winters, who's the former chief product officer of uh, Eventbrite, Ravi Mehta, the former chief product officer of Tinder, Um, Joff Redfern, who is uh, most recently chief product officer at um, Atlassian, and prior to that at LinkedIn, Elena Verna, uh, who's an advisor to every single PLG company that you could possibly think of at the moment, and a bunch of other uh, great guests along the way. My guess is you're going to hear some really spicy hot takes from those folks. So uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode and uh, subscribe and join us for the next one. Thanks, everybody.